My name is Aubrey Arneson. I'm a DGC director, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to the DGC podcast, brought to you by the Directors Guild of Canada National Directors Division. We'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional Indigenous lands that we all live and gather on today. Although this talk took place in Toronto, we are all located on traditional ancestral Indigenous lands. We are grateful to the Indigenous peoples who have cared for these lands and waters for thousands of years. Many of us have come as settlers, immigrants, and newcomers in this generation and generations past. We also acknowledge those who came here forcibly, particularly as a result of the transatlantic slave trade. Therefore, we honor and pay tribute to the ancestors of African origin and descent. Today's episode features a panel of directors whose latest documentaries premiered at Hot Docs 2023. DGC co-directors Sean Horlor and Steve Adams talk Satan Wants You, their latest documentary that digs into how the satanic, panic-fueled fear and conspiracy theories destroyed and devastated many lives. They're joined by DGC director Georges Hanen, who discusses his film Undertaker for Life, which gives viewers an intimate look into the world of morticians. Hanen explores the world of those who handle life's final arrangements and offers reflection on life's biggest questions. Fellow DGC director Reg Harkema guides this discussion. I hope you enjoy. Well, thanks for coming out. Just wanted to uh, talk briefly for a second about uh, why I am the perfect moderator from the, for this panel, because uh, Satan wants you about the satanic panic and Undertaker for Life, which is a philosophical treatise about death, might not have a lot in common, but uh, you know, from someone who was uh, 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 indoctrinated by the Christian church for 20 years, <laughs> the connections between uh, mortality and religion are, are, are quite close, and uh, um, I... Uh, do appreciate how uh, uh, both of these films uh, explore that. Now, Satan Wants You, Michelle remembers actually, Michelle remembers. I, I have an OG copy of that book from a, a thrift store and like, you know, if, if ever there was a subject that, you know, was like sitting in my lap that I should have pursued, that was it. Why the interest and where did the, the you know, the, was it an access thing? Because there's quite a bit of tapes and so on that you guys finally got access to. How did this come together? You know, uh, just to explain to everyone, Michelle remembers, if you haven't heard of this book, it was a bestseller. It is by a woman named Michelle Smith and a psychiatrist whose name was Dr. Lawrence Pazder. Basically, in 1976, they started therapy. Uh, Michelle had had a miscarriage and a really bad dream and... Larry, Dr. Pazder, thought there was something more to it, and they embarked on two years of therapy that went from one day a week to seven days a week to eight hours a day every day. And this is what forms the book. Basically, she has these childhood memories of being abducted by a satanic cult and horrifically abused. 
And I grew up in Victoria where this was written uh, and I lived 10 minutes down the road from them. <laughs> so for me, the reason why we wanted to do this film is like, this was a huge part of my childhood. This went on for like 15 years, you know, this is 15 years of history that we sort of cover in this film. And it's just Victoria, Can what? Who thought this would happen in Canada? And then impact millions and millions of people around the world. Um, well, how about, uh, uh, like, what was the trigger, though, that said, go, like, we got to go do this? I mean, you, you, you've talked, you just talked to uh, uh, Sean about a bit of your interest uh, in the thing. Like, how, how did you find out about the tapes and so on, for instance? Uh, well, first of all, in 2018 is when uh, we were working on a different project about books and authors in BC, uh, and our researcher had delivered us uh, 100 books, and number 50 was Michelle Remembers. I had never, I'd never heard of it before. You saw it, and you were like, oh, God, this book. And that's kind of where we, we started with it. We just kind of, we, at, at that time, QAnon and Pizzagate were happening. We could see a lot of similarities between what was happening then and what was happening now. And so we thought it was a good time to, to pursue the film. Um, the tapes are, are a different story. Uh, they were something that we really tried to track down for a really long time. Uh, it took us up until we were almost picture locked, actually. Uh, and we had somebody anonymously send us a tape. And we were we had to rework the whole movie and get those tapes in there, but it was uh, quite the undertaking. Oh, okay. So it wasn't like any sort of trigger thing, like oh, we have this foot. Like you know, how did you get? For instance, uh, I'm not sure you have a distributor like Game Three. How, how did you get? Uh, do you have a broadcaster as well? Yeah, like Doc so Channel. So how did you get them to sign off and and uh, on the project? I mean, we sat down with Jordana at a like a little like meeting. Uh, and she, we gave her like a one page and she was immediately like, yeah, no, I love this. And so it pretty much just took off from there. You know, the title of the film, Satan Wants You, that seems to open a lot of doors. I got to be honest, you know, <laughs> same. I mean, we have a U.S. Uh, sales agent as well, Cargo. And in our first meeting with them, he said, you know, our sales agent was like, there's three things that sells Satan, Nazis and JFK. And he's like, we want this film. So <laughs> good to know I'm already... Gonna chat GP those three subjects into a feature script. <laughs> oh, don't, don't, I, why are they laughing? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so Sean, so you grew up in Victoria, which, it, you know, uh, um, uh, the devil worshiping capital of North America is now, because of this book, it's a uh, 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 reputation. Um, and you remember it, but uh, uh, Steve, so what, what, did you see what was interesting you about had you heard of any of this when it was going on no I'm from northern BC and growing up I, I had to ask my mom I was like did, like was she worried about any of this stuff like did was this part of our lives and she was like no this really like it, it didn't really reach there uh so I was just more interested in just the conspiracy theory aspect of it how people were believing shit that was completely fake um with no no refutable evidence nothing like that uh and so I just thought it was like a really juicy topic that is something that we could tell well and uh, um, a couple of things about uh, uh, the structure of the film I wanted to ask you, uh, um, because while watching the film, it's, it's interesting that you, 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 you start to build out these characters and then suddenly the book takes off. And as a viewer, I'm kind of like left wondering to myself, well, you know, I really want to know what is going on between uh, the sister and uh, Michelle and so on. That must have been a landmine to drop into their family. But of course, what's interesting about the structures, you kind of like circle back around to all those things. So I guess it's a two-fold question. How did you build out all those characters, like deciding what characters, and how did you end up uh, arriving on that structure? 
we, I mean, we looked at the story and having lived through it. And I mean, I assume there's a lot of people in this audience who lived through the 80s or either children or you're an adult then and sort of watched this unfold to some level of knowledge that you might have. For, for Steve and I, we really wanted to present this sort of how you would experience in the 80s. So the, the first 40 minutes of the film is very much like how you would have read it in the newspaper, or seen it on TV. And that for us was the, a pivot moment too. And then the family had never spoken. So this is one of the things like Michelle and Larry, they did hundreds of interviews for 15 years and not a single person talked to Larry's ex-wife, his daughter, uh, Michelle's sister, Cheryl. And knowing that we had their access to them, we could create this huge moment in the film that really, I won't spoil it, but it'll, you know, it's like, you're like, holy fuck, right? Like <laughs> when they actually start saying what really happened from their point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay, I don't want to freeze yours out here a second. I'm very interested in how you found uh, your characters. Um, to, to give a little introduction to, to George's film, it's, a, it's a, a movie about, I guess, people who work in the death industry. Kind of a comic philosophical take on it. It's probably the least gory film you could imagine uh, um, about the death industry. What's particularly fascinating about these people is they're just so well-adjusted. You see these crazy religious whack jobs in their film, <laughs> right? And then you get well-adjusted religious whack jobs <laughs> in George's film. So how did you find all these characters? And did you know, and, and was it an inquisit, like, did you know that they were going to be like that going in? Or, or what made you decide to film them? Uh, it's, it goes way back. Uh, I still remember in my hometown when you asked the mortician how, how was business, he'd say dead. So it was, for me, that was kind of, it was always like, they, they, they're very interesting and strange people and they have it's kind of a buffer for them for how to control their emotions and and when i get to funerals and i see these people like i see in, in way back when i was going to church I, anyway it's another story but i see these people going down the, down the aisle and and they're like in control they know they, they to kind of they just control all the emotion of the whole place you have all these people crying there's all kinds of stuff happening and they would just they were just like conductors of emotion for me. It was like, you know, and I always told myself, I never want to play poker with these people. <laughs> They're going to beat the hell out of me. But it was always a how to make a film with them and how to bring that to another, get to the next step. Uh, not, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'm somewhere in there is something. But it's, it's, uh, it, it became how to, it, for me, it, was, it's, it talks about life. And to, you know, when you bring your car to the garage and then it's the third time and then you tell the mechanic, like, you know, I hate this car, like what? What car should I get next time? You, you have to ask the questions to the right people. And for me, morticians were like, if you want to talk about life, they're really close to that, that bridge, that kind of from, from, from being alive and then being dead. But it, was, uh, but it took a while before you, you can break that, that wall of information because that's their protection. That's how they protect themselves. They're very, uh, they're used to, to, they listen. That's what they do. So when you want to try to turn the table around, and just to meet them, it was like, I tried to do meetings, I'd phone them or whatever, and that's, that would never work. That, the only thing that really worked is I'd, I'd drive by and then now oh, there's cars, so I'd keep going and then come back half an hour later, oh, there's no cars, all right, and try to do it in the morning, the afternoon, just visits, whatever. And you walk in with a stern face, and then they offer you a coffee, you want to sit down. <laughs> then you start talking, and then you take your time before you get to the film part, you know, you just kind of... <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, so it took a lot of that to, uh, to uh, but, uh, but it became like, just the, and they didn't trust me, you know, I mean, they're, they're, their whole concept is not to have any emotion and not to talk about this. So it's like, so it was just a way for them. I was 
kind of telling them to just kind of drop the protection and, you know, let's, let's talk. But I mean, in the film, there's maybe six or seven morticians, but I actually interviewed maybe 12, 15. Yeah. And did you know that they were going to be like this going in? And uh, were there some of these morticians who were like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying you had a thesis going but in, but, you know, in general, again, there, there seems to be a commonality about like them being so well adjusted. Did you Drop characters you didn't think were going to fit into that thesis? Yeah, I dropped quite a few people. Like if, if it's an employee, it's like, well, I don't know if I could say that. My boss might lose my job. I don't know, it's kind of, you know, and then you get into with the, the actual owners of the business or the actual, uh, then they don't have that baggage. It's like they just kind of let it go. And, and it's, But I mean, just there were some fascinating ones that are not in there, but they're really interested in, and, you know, there's, there's a couple, they're, they're both morticians and they met like embalming someone like that's, that's, that was their first, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, <laughs> and they have kids and they play, uh, they play with their Barbies, they do funerals in the sandbox, kind of, anyway, but it was like, it's like, okay, this is like, where does that fit in, in, you know, like <laughs> in the story? So it's a lot of that stuff is, is not there, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's there, it's, anyway. But uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. That's Since I've watched your film, George, I've kind of go through a life a little bit like, what would the Hearst driver do? He says, yeah, you got to see the film, but he's got some really spot on uh, uh, kind of insights into uh, life philosophies and so on. He phoned me this morning. Say, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, tell, tell him I say hi. <laughs> oh, well. The, the, the whole hearse uh, being uh, 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 the oil change and these beautiful shots of the hearse, but they're accompanied by descriptions of an autopsy. At what point did you decide to uh, adopt that, uh, um, you know, uh, well-regarded approach, I think? Because it's, it's, it's a, again, it's the easiest, uh, uh, funniest movie about death uh, uh, to go down. At what point did you decide to take that approach? Uh, it, it could have been a really gory film, but I didn't want that. It was like, uh, it's kind of, it, this, the message that they wanted to say is that if I go there, I lose all these people that have a problem with that and then it's like the people that like that or whatever they're going to really enjoy it and it's kind of, anyways it's just wrong people wrong so for me it was just to show the whole embalming process through changing the oil of the hearse was kind of my way of that's what you talk about all the way through is is the first time you saw body with what the and it's like if and if you're a little have a little warped mind it's it's going to be even more gory than seeing the actual thing and if you're uh if you're like some people said holy shit they just kind of realize like three quarters of the way through what's what's going on with the hearse and with the oils and flues being changed and all that but for me it was just kind of a, a symbolic way of showing what they were talking about without uh, having like people fainting and people leaving and this is a uh, um, you know fascinating use of uh, b-roll as kind of metaphor now in satan wants you you guys explored that as well throughout there's like lots of uh, uh, stuff of michelle and uh, larry the uh, um psychiatrist uh, uh, going through their sessions and you get a little bit of a sense of what that was for Michelle to, to, to go through. When did that enter the picture in the, the, the whole aesthetic of the film? I think from kind of the get-go, uh, when you read Michelle Remembers, it, it's really gory. Um, like, it, it, there's a lot of baby killing. Sarah Marshall, who's in the film, uh, refers to it as, like, a baby slaughterhouse by the end. So you could see a lot of these references, um, like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby within the book. And we just knew that we wanted to kind of like riff off that a little bit and bring that in because it, it was of the time, right? Religious horror was gigantic during that time. 
Um, so that's kind of like where we where we started when we were developing what the recreations were going to look like um, and how to kind of bring those to life a little bit. I mean, Steve had specifically found this 1970s horror B movie called The Mark of a, of a Witch. Yeah. And that for us was like, OK, this is 100 percent what she was picturing when she was having these memories come in deep, deep therapy and to bring that into the film and make this sort of a horror documentary. So you don't really, you know, there's lots of hybrid stuff, but I haven't seen a lot of films that are actually like horror, both like the, you know, like the typical genre stuff plus the real life horror, you know, and that for us was like really interesting creatively. Mm -hmm. And we weren't sure how it was going to land. Uh, we, we weren't sure how the, the film was going to be uh, recepted and it actually has done really well. There's been like a lot of horror festivals that have picked it up. Um, and it's like the first time that they're showing a documentary. Um, so we were finding that like really, really interesting. Your work generally, uh, the, the two of you, you've done a few films, right? It's not in the horror genre normally, is it? Uh, no, but we are. We, we do like to kind of walk that razor's edge with the things that we do. Um, the Day Dawn Died, which was our, our short from 2019, uh, really played with recreating this whole, it, the, a person was supposed to die over Easter, Easter weekend and he came back to life. Um, someone like me was more of a verite film where we were just really like getting into the queer community. Um, but say once you, I, I find is like really where we live. Um, and that's really like a space that we, we want to be in. Can you talk a little bit, because what I find fascinating, you know, having lived through the eighties uh, and the satanic panic and, uh, being, uh, a raised, uh, religious is how it's a religious panic. You know, it's a religious driven panic. For me, this is just, you know, satanic panic was like, oh, this is, this is the religious panic of my teen years, right? Because it's over and over again. Can you guys talk about like the Salem witch trials all the way to like what's going on with drag queens in the trans community? I mean, uh, there, there's uh, generally, I mean, you mentioned Salem, of course, which is a similar panic over, in that case, women who are doing witchcraft, all often involving blood babies, all the usual things. Another version of this was the blood libel with Jewish people, which is 2,000 years of this saying that Jewish people abduct children and sacrifice them and drink their blood. And then most recently is the 1980s version where it's Satanists. And this is all coming from, you know, Michelle, remember, sort of took all of these things that were happening culturally at that time and packaged it into a bestseller. So when somebody calls it the patient zero of the satanic panic, that's what they mean is that this existed long before it. But this book took it and sent it to millions of people. And from there, it's like, you know, the Catholic Church, I have to tell you, was involved in the writing of the book from the very beginning. So there's like two priests in Victoria, there's the bishop at some, you know, the bishop thinks it's big, a big enough deal to take them to see the Pope. And they see the Pope like it is endorsed by the church and then spreads, I should say, to so much bigger than that. Right. It's psychiatry. It is women entering the workforce. It is sorry. Law enforcement, and then when this spreads and suddenly preschool teachers are being accused of doing all this satanic stuff, it's queer school teachers and single women who are, you know, put on trial and end up in jail in the 80s and 90s. So it is, and then you look today, to your point too, this is happening again with the transgender community, with drag queens in the U.S. It is really fucked up, you guys, and it's, this is why we wanted to make this film, so you can actually watch it and say, we can all do something about this and we all have a collective responsibility to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, but so like starting in 2018, we could kind of see like a few similarities of it. But then fast forward to 2023 and it just seems like we're in full effect again. Um, and one of the things that we kind of realized was that it's on a cycle every 40 to 30 years. It kind of ebbs and flows and it comes up peaks and then kind of disappears again. And it just seems like humans just naturally 
bring this story up over and over and over again. One thing, if I could add to it's like our film, you know, right before Hot Docs, the newspaper just published this article saying, interviewing a satanic ritual abuse survivor in 2023. Like it is who's saying this happened to me as a child and this movie is wrong and false. And now that our movie is becoming part of the cycle again, like this happened in the 80s and now it's going to happen again today. Yeah. So I, I was looking at therapists uh, like two weeks ago and I found one in Vancouver. And one of the things that she treats is ritual abuse. <laughs> like it's it's insane. Why do you think this cycle happens? Like what is in the, the cultural neuroses of like, I don't know, I guess the Bible belt that they have to reinvent? I think, I think it's really like, I, I've talked about this a lot. Humans are a storytelling species. We try to explain the world around us. And when there's things that are happening in our lives that we can't quite explain, the easiest culprit is always going to be Satan. I think, Sean, you were making the mention about women entering the workforce and uh, needing childcare and that being a new thing. And so in right wing Christian terms, women entering the workforce is almost like a tearing apart of like, you know, the natural order of things. So they would then want to demonize a childcare institution. Like, what is that? And it always comes down to the children. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, religious whack jobs. Now, George, everyone in your <laughs> film... <laughs> Everyone in your film is also religious, you know? So why, why do you think that they seem so much more, like, in terms of their relationship to, to religion? Um, well, there's a couple of, like, I went through different religions because they don't use the services of a mortician. So for me, it was like to, the, the Jewish and the, the Muslim and then the, uh, the uh, autochthon, uh, the Aboriginal, uh, anyway, first Native Americans or Canadians, uh, anyway they have all different traditions of way of dealing with that and how to bury someone. So I, I went in there just to kind of cover it and say, I, I wasn't just a Christian film kind of, I wanted to, because all the morticians basically it's like there's, there's a Jesus is everywhere kind of thing. And it's, it's kind of a normal thing in, in where I come from. And it's a very Catholic in, in Eastern Canada, in, in Mountain, New Brunswick, and it's in Memram Cook and Edmonston and all these little towns that are like, you know, some of them are, there's 5,000 or 2,000 people in the town. So it's very Catholic. They talk about all these other religions, but they have no idea what, you know, I don't know who comes there. With her. But it's, it, it, religion is, is kind of a big mess in there in a way, but it's, they're not really practitioners. They're, they don't really, a lot of them, the morticians don't really not necessarily go to church or not really big believers. They try to be neutral. They kind of, they just, it's kind of a hot subject. It's, they don't want to, you know, I mean, the client comes in, it's like, you know, are you, you're going to, yeah, you have to pass a test that you go to church, you do this, you do that. Well, you can't touch my grandmother, you know, it's kind of, it has to be kind of all intertwined. So for them, it's just, it's not something they want to touch to stay away from it, but it's, uh, they still have kind of, a when they, they're working on bodies, some of them say, oh, I sing to them. Another person, I tell, I tell them when they okay, now I'm going to turn you around and then I'm going to do this and, it's, and they're alone with this person, which is. And they're doing this process of, of they talk to them. And uh, so it's, it's, but they're still very uh, religious for them. It's, it's kind of a very mysterious thing too. You know, it's kind of, they don't, they don't go there too much. My mother was a clustered nun, by the way, just, you know, sidebar. And the continuum between, uh, uh, um, you know, their religious beliefs and this idea that there is an afterlife and death is not the end and their actual, you know, uh, encounter with their senses and dealing with dead people. Where does their like, you know, comfort within themselves come from? Where in that continuum? Uh, geez, have to be have one of them here to tell us, but, uh, 
I don't know. It's just uh, for them, it's not something that they say that, you know, I said, well, do you have a problem with the body or not? Because I mean, if you, if you ask what's the, the, the worst job you don't want to do, like mortician would be like in the top 10 or somewhere that, you know, I wouldn't do that, you know? But, and, and it's like, for them, it was just to understand that uh, it was, how, what's your relationship with that? You know, what's, how do you, how do you see this? And for them, they help people. And he said, we don't have problems with the dead people. It's the ones that are alive around that give us that. It. So it, it wasn't, you know, how to deal with, with, with a body. And then you have, you have, you have an ex-wife and a wife, and then you have a whale. And then this one wants to spend all the money. And this one wants to just, you know, can we just burn the body and, you know, and he said, I can hear the person in the casket laughing behind me. And I have to keep a straight face and go, yes. And show concern. In the death, because I noticed you, you did take great pains to like represent all, all the religions, except for atheism. <laughs> do, do you run into any atheists in the uh, death industry? Uh, yes. And, and uh, I mean, for me, it's like, the, I didn't really touch the, the Catholic religion in a way too. I just, it's, I just, it's so present. It's so there. So it's just that, like, you know, there's a priest that came to see the film. He said, it's too bad. You didn't ask the, the Catholic religion to explain, you know, I said, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if about you, but I counted at least twenty like uh, crosses with, you know. I mean, it, it, you guys are like overrepresented. That's why I put these other guys. And he went, oh, okay, okay. So it was kind, of, but it was like just to try to find a balance. If you're an atheist, I mean, in a way, it, it that wall of debt is 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 so much uh, kind of harder for me. It's I, I I don't necessarily believe in any religion as per se, but I've kind of a spiritual side. But um, but it's still. For me, in the film, that the important thing is to realize that we're all going to die, and and when you realize hit hit last year at Hot Dogs, sorry, <laughs> I had to get a plug in for my friend. <laughs> but but I mean, if once you realize you're going to die, life becomes so much better. I mean, we all try to avoid it, like as if it's you know, it's like blah 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 blah. You know, I'm I'm not going to talk about it. It's like kind of. But once you realize, like, there's a certain people that say you, know, you have to think about that every day, and then. You know, you have to, it's very corny, but you have to smell the roses. You know, all of a sudden say, I'll do that tomorrow. It's like, no, do it now. Do it. Like, you know, you want to phone that person, tell them that you love them. Phone them now. You know, it's like, it's, you never know. Yeah. That, that's, that was what was so interesting to me about these characters is, you know, you know driving the hearse and, and, and uh, doing the embalming or whatever. Like they, more than anyone realize that, you know, we're all going to die and like, you know, uh, I guess what I'm trying to get is even a character like the kid, like he seems to be born into, he seems like the happiest person I've ever met. You know, he's, he's like kind of figured out, you know, like, uh, like, yes, my, my grandmother would be happy that I embalmed her, you know, and it just, it just, just doesn't seem weird or freaky to him at all at 22 anymore. So I am curious about, is it, is it, is it like the, the, the tactical confrontation with death or the fact that, he is like born into this community of uh, 22 years and, you it, know. It's, it's like a vocation. It's like a, I don't know, that's the French word, la vocation. It's like kind of a, the people that go into the priesthood or to different, they, for them, it's like they, they serve. It's like, it's, it's a, you know, for when I started my research, for me, they were like cleaners, you know, in the health system, like couldn't keep a body alive anymore. And it was like, they would come up and clean up, you know. But after a while, I realized that they're the people that take care of, the living, you know, the people that they, they come and they, uh, like when they go into a house to, to go get grandpa and they, they're going down the stairs with grandpa. Yeah, yeah. 
and, and then they're talking to the family and, they're, they're, and they go out and then they just to do that with dignity and, to, and with respect. And for them, it's, it's, it's something he said, people are completely, they don't know what to do. They phone them and they come there and they say hi and take by the hand. Okay, we're going to do this now. We're going to do that. And then all this process is going on and it's like, it's very strange. You know, I mean, there's, everybody's in shock here. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, all those people, you know, I mean, if you could like boil down what, uh, uh, you know, their goods and service to those bodies being widgets, you know, like all of them sought to get a five star on Yelp and no one would ever do that. No one is ever going to give them a five star, but their reverence for what they are doing, you know, just uh, uh, shone through. Um, let's talk to a, bit, a bit about some of the characters now in uh, uh, S Satan Wants You, and particularly I want to ask about uh, um, the friend character. She was so, she seemed to be a true believer. Uh, what do you think is going on with her? Oh, Chidi. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I really like Chidi. Chidi uh, was a transcriber, so she listened to like literally thousands of hours of these tapes, and she she wrote all the words. Um, she was one of Michelle's friends, and just a she, like she just has a very spiritual nature to her. Um, and I, and I think being immersed within that world for the amount of time that she was, she didn't have any other choice but to believe it. Um, and it was just part of her nature and that's just really who Chidi is. I mean, like, what do you think? Uh, well, it was uncomfortable to put in the, actually cut into the film. I have to be honest. I don't know if other directors and filmmakers here actually have those moments when you make a doc documentary and you're like, okay, this person's saying this and they've said it three times on camera. So we really should put it in the film, even though it's like one of those things where you're like, well, they look back on this and watch the film and regret saying it. And that's a weird, I don't know, when you get those ethical moments, it's like, uh, but she really did believe that Michelle was abducted by a satanic cult as a five-year-old, listened to all the tapes and believes it's true. So I don't, yeah. But I think also to have her as representation for like the people out there who do believe in this thing, right? Like there, there are people that believe in conspiracy theories or people who believe in like Satanists out there abducting children. And so it was really important to have her in the film because where else would we gotten that from? Oh, oh, a a absolutely. And she was just great on camera. She's just a great uh, a character. Um, but she believes it's, it's all true. And the ultimate answer is never given in the film. It's because I don't know if it can be actually answered. But like, you know, what the hell happened? Was it just like, you know, the, 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 the uh, uh, psychiatrist saw an opportunity and, and, and played Michelle. But at the same time, where is Michelle getting all this uh, imagery? What do you, both of you think actually happened? Let me talk about the construction part first, because maybe, you know, for us, there's a temptation to really just hit that final nail at the end of the film, just so it's all done, you know, and like not leave any question unanswered, especially since it's sort of horror, true crime. And that's where we're the space that we're in. For us, we always looked at this. We wanted all the voices to tell their side of the story and present it to the audience at the end to actually make that decision. You know, is Michelle a victim? What, and you, this might be uncomfortable. Was Larry a victim? And to present that to the audience. And, you know, I think we've succeeded. Uh, even the hot dog screening, some folks were really unhappy after watching the film because it, it is that thing where I believe Michelle was victimized clearly by the her psychiatrist. However, she participated in this for 15 years after. So what does that mean, right? When you're a victim who becomes an abuser in, in a way, right? And that's, that's what we're asking of the audience, and it's really polarizing. 
But where also, where was she getting her imagery from? You know, because I mean, by, by the time uh, uh, she was like uh, sitting on uh, uh, um, Dr. Larry's couch, you know, uh, uh, Satanist exploitation films were, were a genre unto themselves. But still, that book shocked the hell out of people and was like showing stuff, you know, that was almost inconsistent. Like, I mean, I think some of these exploitation films have probably been like, man, wish I'd add that idea, you know? I, when we were talking to Larry's daughter, Teresa, uh, she lived with them for a little bit and she said that she would see like the books on Michelle's uh, side table and it was Amityville Horror, um, Rosemary's Baby. There's a reference in the book, uh, Michelle remembers, to uh, a woman whose head's spinning around. Um, so like you can see like the references to The Exorcist. You can see all of this that exists within it. And I think um, Larry really wanted to see this, right? He He wanted to see these cults. He believed in it. He was super religious himself. So... I, I just feel like they were kind of playing off of each other and they would just keep on taking their steps together. And then they went down this terrible rabbit hole and they caused destruction that I'm not sure that they ever understood what was going to happen. I'd say, think about next time, you know, you're out on, you're meeting a friend or you're going on a date with somebody, this could happen to you, right? It really could. Two lives colliding and you change the world in the most horrible way possible. One of, one, of, one of the most satisfying aspects of the film is that you did reach beyond out into the families uh, and so on. Uh, um, so two questions. How did they react when first approached and uh, what has their been reaction been to the film? Has Michelle seen it? Uh, Michelle hasn't seen it yet. Um, when we first contacted, when you made the first contact with Marilyn, uh, Larry's ex-wife, uh, Marilyn, as soon as Sean said that we were doing a doc, she got on the phone and talked for an hour straight. And it was like her recollection was like it was yesterday. She she had uh, she had always tried to help the investigators. She had always tried to help anybody because she just felt responsible or that she needed to, to help the people who were in prison because of this. So she she's always really been uh, present with that. She has an incredible amount of archives. She has all these binders that she's kept, like all of her marriage certificates, like any news articles, anything related to the case. She had all of it. Anytime she saw something about repressed memories um, or anything related to satanic ritual abuse, she would throw a VCR in and she would tape it. She had she gave us like 90 hours worth of footage. She was just collecting all of this stuff because she needed to like tell the truth. And we had Cheryl, uh, Michelle's sister, came to the Toronto premiere here, which is, you know, she had never seen the film and she wanted, she wanted to watch it with the crowd and see it in the theater for the first time, which is really nerve-wracking, I have to be honest, when you, you know, there's, yeah, the satanic panic's really stupid and you can laugh at it, but when you're actually dealing with people's trauma and then putting on that, on the screen to share with everybody at the same time, there is that serious element to filmmaking, documentary filmmaking too, with a film like this. But she loved the film and she thanked us after, you know, the next day she said that she couldn't sleep that night because she was thinking so much and all of this feeling came back, but she was like, Thank you so much for giving me the space to talk about my sister and talk about my mother and redeem my mother, you know, in the story. Wow. All that. Are, so it was all sitting there waiting for me. Hey, there's a lot more. There's a lot more that we tried to find. Melissa was working her ass off trying to find it. Our, our <laughs> producer and our archive producer, Melissa, is amazing. Hats off to the archive producers. I'm married to one. One, one thing uh, um, that I don't think he quite touched upon as much in the film is this sister who you were just talking about talks a little bit about like the phenomenon of like, whoa, my old, my sister's out there. And then you have that wonderful bit where she tries to 
redeem her mom because yeah, Michelle is basically, God, man, not throw, throw her under the bus. She threw her under a 747 on this one, you know? Did you ever get anything about like what that moment of, uh, uh, with the sister confronting Michelle, like that family dynamic, like what, what do you think happened a bit between them? I don't know. When we were talking to Cheryl, she said that she really got like kind of wrapped up, especially when the book came out. There was like a, a like a month kind of period that she was like watching it all unfold and she was super into it. It was exciting um, to see her sister doing all of this. Um, but afterwards, like, I'm not really sure I, they don't have a really close relationship anymore. Um, they, there was that point where Cheryl said Cheryl actually didn't like she wasn't sure if it had happened to her as a child. Like this is how influential this book was Cheryl actually started believing it because it's a psychiatrist telling her sister that this did happen to her and Cheryl does say that did say that to us which was really you like I mean this, these kind of conspiracies for some people it makes you doubt your reality entirely and the, and there was a third sister too right yeah Tertia the older one did you guys ever talk uh, to her we did reach out uh she didn't want to speak uh she Cheryl was five years younger than Michelle and she didn't live in Victoria at the time when the book came out. So she didn't really like experience like the, the media. Um, but Tersha did. And Tersha always had people knocking on her door, trying to talk to her. And Tersha just didn't want to relive this part of her life. But you did uh, obviously extensively talk with Cheryl. What Coming away from those talks and all the research, like what do you think happened in their uh, childhood? Like these three sisters with this alcoholic father, that is it just as simple as like Michelle was like looking for someone to grab onto since in cliche dramatic terms that father figure had left her you know what was it about that grow and maybe you can answer this Sean what was it about that growing up in Victoria that made all this spill out of Michelle do you think well if you've been to Victoria it's not the kind of city where this happens it's pretty boring <laughs> and maybe this is just a way to make life more interesting and you know there's stuff you, you, there's also a legal threshold for us with this film and all films right so like we heard from one source or two sources certain things that we would have loved to put in this film but because you can't back it up with enough people saying it you can't so if it was only michelle and one person who maybe there's a phone conversation the stuff we can't actually include that stuff which is disappointing so However, I think our film does represent really all those voices, all those positions and, and yeah. leaves it up to you to think what actually happened. Yeah. Michelle and Larry, they had a long relationship. So like they started seeing each other in 1972, right? Um, and like Michelle, Larry went to her wedding. Like they, they had, there was something happening with them that I think was before uh, 1976 and before the book. And I really just truly think that this was them trying to come together as two people. And this is the story that they told themselves in order to make that happen. Awesome. Okay, I got five minutes. I'm going to ask each of you two questions. I'm going to ask each of you the same question. I guess I'll just start with two questions to, to, to you two. What uh, um, was the most surprising thing you found making this film? You know, okay, so you, you hear all this stuff, right, about the book. Oh, yeah, it's like you uses the transcripts from the therapy tapes. And you're like, well, did it, it's still like not creative nonfiction. And you're like, is this true? Everyone just says it. And when we finally got that therapy tape from an anonymous source, it was literally shocking to hear because no, no one, like four investigative teams had looked for it in the U.S. No one had heard it outside of this group of people. And then to actually listen to it and we could take a PDF of Michelle Remembers and find exact phrases from the, like they literally took these tapes 
and the the fact that the tape itself that we got was 50 minutes of screaming like just screaming which so, is, so you've listened through you guys listened through all the tapes or at least the highlights of it like how does she come across like in terms of her sincerity it's all over the place. I mean, it goes from like absolute screaming to like talking to him on a personal level um, where she's like just, where they're having like conversations about who they are as people to like it, it goes all over the map. And I, like Sean said, the majority of it is just like hardcore screaming. OK, so last question for Sean and Steve. Judas Priest or Iron Maiden? <laughs> Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Right on. Okay, George, what is the most surprising thing you found? The the warmth and the uh, the the love of life of these people. To 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 work so closely to that, you kind of they just kind of they're just beautiful people. Yeah, I mean that's what I found. You know, comes across so strongly in, in the movie. So you weren't expecting that going in. Like, what were you expecting going in? I guess I I knew it was gonna. I had a wall to cross. I had to bust the wall and and kind of go through that process of their protection and and to get to to have them start talking and start trusting me. And, and I keep telling them, there's no bad people in my movies. Like, everybody's good. If, if you're bad, you're not going to be in there anyway. So, so it was kind of how to pre take them by the hand and what do you want to tell the world? Because it became, it's easier when you do that kind of film is that what do you want to tell the people, you know? And then it's, then you kind of edit what, where they want, where they want, they want to bring you. But once in a while, they open up a door and you go, ooh, you get a peek into somewhere and you go, that's interesting. Then you can go deeper in there and you can go, but it's a, just a process of, of meeting them and to just, that they, they're humans, you know, they cry. Ah, it's a you know, little known fact. Well, the death industry cry. Okay, so final question, George. After all this research and you as a documentary filmmaker and talking to undertakers and, and hearse drivers and everyone, you are best equipped to answer this. What happens when we die? Very simply, we rot. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Thank you, everyone. Sean, Steve from Satan wants you, and George for Undertaker for Life. I highly encourage you watch both these films. They're fantastic. Thank you. chat. I love hearing from documentary filmmakers. I love hearing about their process. I love hearing what they're doing. And what was really interesting for me is my grandpa was an undertaker. <laughs> my grandpa ran a funeral home. My dad grew up um, as a teenager driving the hearse and yeah, witnessing embalmings. And uh, that was pretty interesting for me. Um, I'm still scared of death, but anyways. Uh, <laughs> so that was a really sort of cool part of the chat for me to listen to. I also love how Sean and Steve they put the film out there without answering all the questions, but they answered their, their views on it in this discussion. Um, and I thought that was really bold and brave as filmmakers to say what they think actually happened, but then they have a film out there that doesn't quite answer the question. It lets us answer it ourselves as the viewer. Um, brave, bold filmmaking. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at DGC Talent on Instagram and Facebook. And if you are looking to hire a director, you can access an amazing resource, directors.ca, where you'll find a director with the perfect skill set to match your project. Special thanks to technical producer Giacomo Beltrami and producer Hans Engel. Take care, and we'll talk soon on the next episode. Mm -hmm.